Hi, this is Foster McCurley. Welcome to Aging Mindfully. This is a podcast about the effects, the challenges, and the opportunities for aging. Today, George, we're going to be looking at biological markers of aging, and um, and among the issues we'll discuss are the pain of aging um, and the the universality of it, which is comforting sometimes to know that everybody else is in it too, the inevitability of uh, the suffering that goes with aging. But but we want to go beyond that to, to talk about what our inner responses might be to aging that, that can make it bearable. So what, what do we mean by the marker, the biological markers of aging, George? By biological markers of aging, I simply want to indicate that aging, and this sounds almost sophomoric uh, to say, but the truth of the matter is, aging is a phenomenon which has profound inevitability and determinism in terms of the lifespan. And by that I mean what life is about is going through the seasons of life, spring, summer, fall, and autumn, and that there's that there are biological markers which which mark youth from adult, from maturity into senescence. And as a gerontologist and someone who takes care of older and dying people, I see this all the time. And this is both, on the one hand, inevitable, and on the other hand, it's frightening. It's inevitable because we all grow old, which of course we all know, but when it's us growing old, it becomes a very scary thing. Because I don't want to grow old, I want to stay young. And the reason I want to stay young is because I was born into and live in a society characterized by Western Europe and the North American continent, which glorifies, deifies staying young. If that's the cultural norm, and it becomes my norm, and it's how I'm defined, I define myself that way. So staying young is what I want to do, growing old is what I don't want to do. But the inevitable markers of growing old are always with me. In our society, turning 50 is about the time that one moves into executive positions. The truth of the matter is, when we turn 50, we start losing our short-term memory. Uh, when we grow into our fifth and sixth decades, we've, we're said to be mature, except as you move into the fifth and sixth decades, you start losing your sexual potency. So all sorts of things begin to happen physiologically, which kind of sabotages your cultural definition of yourself. And so on the one hand, we're moving forward, On the other hand, our body is beginning to move backwards. And if the name of the game is, I've got to stay young, then I have two choices. If I know I'm growing older and I can't stop the train, I have only two choices. Either I deny that I'm growing older, or I set into motion a strategy which staves off as long as possible the the growing older Uh, inevitability, which is what I think the entire clothing industry, cosmetic industry, entertainment industry is all about, namely they're all attempts to keep us as young as possible for as long as possible. 
So that's what I mean by biological markers. The, there are spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and physical benchmarks along the way that, that tell us that we're in fact moving along a specific trajectory, which either we can choose to listen to and find a way to deal with constructively, or we don't listen to, or we are simply progressively overwhelmed by, uh, by the things we can no longer deny. Where I am in life, personally at the age of 77, and where I find my patients who are somewhere between 60 and 90, they are people who have painfully succumbed to what I think is a cultural bias against growing older. So that the older I grow, the more impotent I feel. The older I grow, the less I like myself. Every time I look in the mirror, I see a haggard old man. And this makes me, this creates a picture of myself which is not healthy, which is not nice, which is not pretty, but which is kind of where we are today in life. Church, coming back to strictly biological issues for a moment, uh, a few years ago I was listening to a gerontologist speak to a group of caregivers at a, a nursing home, and she made the comment that uh, one should never blame aging for this or that physical ailment, and she said, don't, don't talk to me about the fact that you're getting old and that's the cause of your pain unless you're 85. I'd, I'd like to hear how you respond to that biological issue and, uh, and whether or not there's any, any re reason, rhyme or reason, to that kind of statement. I'm glad you brought that up because I think her comment is absolutely correct. By that I mean I see people all the time who have symptoms of aging which they ascribe to, I'm just, go I'm just getting old, I'm over the hill. When much of the time, if not most of the time, those symptoms have nothing to do with being so-called over the hill, but they're really due to specific end organ pathology, much, much of which is reversible. I see patients who uh, start having problems with fatigue, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm 70 years old, and you know, when you're 70, you're kind of over the hill, and I, that's just the way it is when in fact their fatigue may be due and much of the time is due to a reversible biological phenomenon such as early heart failure or early kidney failure or an anemia or a depression, all of which potentially can be reversible, but they won't be reversible as long as I harbor the philosophy, well that's just the way it is. So I think in this sense her comment was absolutely correct. We do have this cultural bias that if you're 60 or beyond, you're so over the hill, what difference does it make? When in fact, and this is rather idiosyncratic to our times, medical care is so good today. People are living uh, so much longer with such a higher quality of life that there's no reason for anyone to assume that any particular symptom they have is just a function of, well, I'm just over the hill and that's, you know, you know, just let it go. I think that's a terrible, terrible mistake. So I urge all my patients, if you have something going on that you're not sure of, go to your doctor, get it checked out. You might be surprised 
that it might be absolutely reversible. This is not to say that there are not signs and symptoms of just aging in itself. It's interesting, um, George, I'm, my 75th birthday is coming up in a few months, and increasingly I find that when I have something suspicious medically going on and, and get checked out, uh, this or that specialist will often imply that since you're so old, I'm not sure we'll do anything about it anyway if it proves to be this or that diagnosis. And I understand that in many ways. Uh, if some of these uh, diagnoses really turned out to be true, I'd probably have to go through a lot of suffering to be to, to recover. And um, I think their question is, do you really want to put yourself through that at age 75? Uh, you know, what they don't know is I, I live on how many hundreds of sit-ups I can do in a day. And uh, I don't know if I'm just kind of denying my getting old by trying to do 300 sit-ups at a time. But nevertheless, there is something I think is uh, healthy about my willingness to do that or my stubbornness to do that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think yesterday's discussion in the news about uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney's heart transplant highlights just what you're talking about. There is a strong bias to uh, to say, well, people like Cheney and Foster and George, who were in their seventh decade, we don't need to be as aggressive because, you know, what difference is it going to make? And once one gets into that mindset, we don't do heart transplants, we don't do coronary artery bypasses, uh, we don't do this, we don't do that, we just so-called let them go gently into the night. I think there's a time and a place to let someone go gently into the night. I spend much of my time as a physician helping patients and families talk about these very things. And there's a time to press on and there's a time to just not do anything. The danger with this, this kind of discussion is that quite often depends upon what one's own conscious or unconscious bias is. If I, as a physician, have a kind of a bias which says, well, Foster, you're 75, you know, that's, you know, come on, Foster, don't be unrealistic. Once I have that bias, then I'm going to tend to think in a certain way and I will persuade you and your family in a certain way which is going to act out my own bias. And I think, yes, you're 75, but you're a man who does X number of push-ups a day. Yes, you're 75, but you're a man who travels and lectures all over the world. So I think what we need to do is really take every case on its own merits and know the individual so well that we give the individual and the family a chance to do what they want, rather than compartmentalize people based upon their age, which says, if you're 75, we're simply not going to be as aggressive as we were before. That's right in some cases. It's a disaster in others. It's not only the physical issues that happen as you get older, uh, or that can happen, but um, but the whole sense of of uh, a spiritual question, existential question that uh, that accompanies it. Um, well, let's talk for a bit about that, George. You you alluded to some of these at the very beginning when you were defining biological markers as uh, as getting into the realm of uh, inevitability and universality and and uh, all, all the struggles that go with the. Uh, 
the, the impotence in many different ways uh, about aging. Uh, but, but let's talk about that for a little bit. And, and what, what should caregivers really have in mind when they're, when they're trying to be helpful to people who are getting older? Uh, what issues do you see to be most critical ones uh, that are apart from the medical or not apart from so much as maybe even the result of some of the medical issues? Yeah, I think we're coming to the heart of the issue here. I spend my life dealing with people, using aging as an example, who sooner or later become, I would say, almost overwhelmed by their suffering. In my view, the golden years exist for some, don't exist for many. The years are golden after retirement if you have good health, if you have a companion, if you have sufficient financial reserves to do the things you want to do. If you have the reserves but no one to share it with, and that's so a golden. Uh, if you have the financial reserves but you don't have good health, it's not so golden. So the golden years are relative. Most of the people that I see, the golden years were very limited and then they disappeared or just never happened at all. And so most of the patients I take care of, growing old is accompanied by an increased amount of suffering. And my concern as a physician and as a fellow sojourner is to deal with the question when your definition your self-definition has been given to you by a, by a society which says youth is better than aging. And when you really take that into yourself and that becomes who you are, and when aging is now accompanied by a good deal of physical and mental pain, and when you live with that day in and day out, and when you live with that alone because maybe you've lost your spouse, you're separated from your children who were in other parts of the world, and you're surrounded uh, not by happy people, you're, but you're surrounded by other sufferers, whether it's a nursing home or a retirement community or an apartment building, doesn't make any difference. So when you're stuck in this time in life, how does one deal with suffering which for which there is no immediate answer, there is no escape, you'll wake up tomorrow with the same suffering that you had today. And this describes in a way many of my patients who are wonderful people, but they have reached the point in life where they don't see themselves as useful, they feel cut off from their community, there's nothing physically that really takes them out of their pain. And I find myself wondering is there anything that can be done for these people? Is this something, is there anything that can be given to them? Or is this something that, is there something inside them which has to somehow participate? Um, so I guess, you know, the, the, the existential question I struggle with as a physician is how can one help the sufferer deal with the suffering 
And maybe I'm asking, is there more to suffering than just the inevitable biological markers that we've talked about? Well, when you ask that question or make that statement, George, I, I can't help but think of of the relationship that you had in, uh, in several different ways with uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, whose his book, A Man's Search for Meaning, was a profound study of of exactly that kind of question, I think, is how how does one uh, find meaning in life, or, or, or what, what questions does suffering cause uh, that, that need to be addressed. Uh, I, I'm struck by the fact that on the basis of Frankel's work, uh, a, a whole variety of, uh, of logotherapists and others have, have, have developed a, a kind of oh, scheme, if you will, that um, that I think derives from Frankel rather directly, is that the physical suffering, sickness, um, isn't the same as illness. That, that physical suffering sets up the stage where questions about meaning arise, and that's called illness. So there is not a separation, but a distinction between sickness and illness. The sickness part is and you would know how to deal with this, is addressable at any rate um, in terms of medication or or surgery or palliative care. But the question about what meaning does this illness have, the, 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 the literally the illness question, is a totally different issue. Um, and, and what happens if the, if the curing, the medical treatments and all that don't work? Um, what does that do to the person's illness question about what is the meaning behind it all and, and what is the meaning of my life and whether or not I'm cured? It, it seems to me that that's, that's always the big issue. Um, the things that happen to us do cause an illness issue, and that is to ask, above all, I believe, about who am I? I think it's a very common question that people um, resort to when uh, things go wrong, because, uh, as you said before, um, the society does distinguish between young and old very deliberately. Uh, but part of the old part is um, is when we're no longer able to do the things that have defined us in the past. Uh, I was just visiting in a doctor's office yesterday, and they, uh, as I had to, it was my first time in that office, and I had to answer the usual questions on a sheet of paper. But and then they were followed up by an interviewer who, who said, "Are you retired?" And and I said, "Blissfully so." Um, and by that I meant I have more time to spend with my grandchildren and and spend time in my woodworking shop. But for many people, and maybe even for myself, that's not entirely blissful because I don't do the things I used to do and and if I'm defined as a a theologian or a teacher if I, if I say I am a theologian or I am a teacher of theology or I am a pastor and then all that disappears because I retired or became unable to perform the duties needed for that and perhaps because I 
don't remember things as well as I used to. Um, but then I'm really in a pickle. If my definition of myself is on the basis of what I do or did, and I no longer do it, then who am I? So that seems to me to be a major issue for many folks who are retired, but it seems to me that the people who are who are sick or ill or suffering from the biological markers that you describe, that becomes even worse. They're less able to do what they did. And what happens then to one's identity? It also, I think, is behind um, maybe how, how do we survive the midst of all the pain and suffering and the sociological separations that aging might cause. I'm struck, uh, as I hear you speak, I'm struck by how firmly entrenched cultural norms and definitions are. Uh, I'm in the seventh decade of my life, and I'm just now, in a way, struggling, and I think it really is a struggle, to say to myself, no, you are not a doctor. Well, well, yes, I am a doctor. Well, yes, George, you are a doctor, but you are not primarily a doctor. You're primarily a human being. Do you have another identity? And George, do you have an identity that's stronger, that can withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? And it strikes me as I hear you talk that that may be one of the, if not the, most difficult task of aging. It's not a matter of, I did this and now I'm in retirement, but rather, who am I and is my self-identity so tied into the cultural definition of who I am? Is my identity so strong and durable, maybe not so strong, but durable, that it can withstand the the onslaught of the inevitable changes of aging. I, I'm very struck about the fact that aging is a matter of loss. I lose my physical strength. I lose my mental agility. I lose all the things that I have prized about my life. And I think it's a natural tendency to feel bad about yourself because I feel good about myself because the whole world has rewarded me for my physical and my mental strength. And now that is taken from me in one degree or another. The question is, who am I? And I hear you raise the question of identity. If I'm not the bright man, if I'm not the beautiful man, if I'm not whatever society has rewarded me to be, who am I? Is there another way of looking at myself that has underpinnings that would allow me to withstand and transcend this assault of, of deprivation that's come upon me. Namely, if I'm not this and this and this, I'm either nothing or I have to craft an identity that will allow me to go through the suffering of loss. Is there a theological response to that? Well, I think there there is a theological response, and sometimes theology and spirituality come together very directly, and sometimes they don't. But it seems to me on this issue, they really do. And 
And and and I, from from my perspective, uh, the the who I am issue is really the healing issue over against the illness question. What is the meaning of my life in the midst of all this mess? Um, the, the, the healing issue for me is uh, that I am a child of God uh, in my church and the Lutheran tradition. Um, many of us are, most of us probably, are baptized as infants to become a member of the family of God. It uh, doesn't mean that we are exclusively God's beings, but that we have an identity within a community uh, that might not be the only determinative of what happens to us forever, but certainly affects the way we live our lives in the present. It, it seems to me that, that, that baptism made me a child of God, and, and that's prim my primary identity. Uh, over the years, I, a child of God, have taught theology. It's what I did, not what defined me. I have served as a pastor. I have um, counseled people. Uh, I, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a teacher. I'm a child of God who does these things. And and from my point of view, uh, I, I think no matter what I do, uh, will always be on the basis of who I am and not the other way around. Uh, so I find that uh, when my spirit is working properly and my mind is clear, that that identity helps me get through a lot of dramatic changes and chaotic ones in life. Um, it doesn't mean that, it, that every, every moment I'm... Uh, I'm just filled with this faithful response to who I am. I, I go through as much doubt as anybody else. It's just constant in, in everybody's life, I think. You and I have talked about uh, the famous statement by Paul Tillich that, that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but a part of it. And, and I think that's because faith is not a, a, a discipline, a theological uh, doctrine. Um, faith is a relationship above all. It's one of trust in God. It's a, it's a matter of uh, going to God when you know that everything else has gone wrong. It's a matter of recognizing that, that God is the one in whom you put your trust when suffering arises. Um, and, and and God might be providing answers to that in terms of good medical care and, and good caregivers and, and all the rest. But, but no matter uh, what I do, I, I'm nevertheless a child of God. And, and I, I find it really is important that, that I was baptized as a baby for the, to become God's child. It, it had nothing to do with any contribution I made to society, to the church, uh, it was before I even knew there was a church, um, before I could even uh, distinguish appropriate from inappropriate action. Uh, all I did at that time was, you know, wet and dirty my diapers and cry for food. And that was very selfish when you think about it. It was only self-centered. But that's when God claimed me as God's child. And that's an identity, in other words, that I didn't earn. 
that I have only by God's incredible grace and that defines me no matter what else happens in my life. Is, is that the kind of other identity you might think of? Well, I think so. And I, I'm, 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 on the one hand, I'm intrigued by what you say. And on the other hand, I must confess, I'm also moved by it. And the reason I'm moved by it is the fact that, um, in a way, it dovetails into our earlier discussion about biological markers of aging. Namely, I hear you say, um, I hear you give complete assent to the reality and importance and inevitability of biological markers. It's like, this is the way it is. We grow old, we die. We grow old, we go through loss. We go through old and we have certain very predictable forms of suffering. That is what it is. Uh, and it's not a commentary on who we are, other than it's a commentary on our biology. Uh, if you live long enough, you're going to get arthritis. If you live long enough, uh, your kidneys are going to fail. If you live long enough, uh, your mind's going to fail. It is what it is. Uh, and it's not unique to our species. One of the um, strange characteristics, I think, of the times in which we live is that we, as humans, tend to personalize our aging as if the goal of life is to be somehow different than what we are. I should live forever. I should forever be young. Um, uh, I, I have felt for a long time that uh, our society um, elevates and deifies three attributes of being a human. Brains, beauty, and boobs. And the, the name of the game is, okay, hold on to those three as long as you can. And what life becomes is a strategy to, to do that. When the reality of the biological markers is, is that we lose all three. No one is spared. And so if one recognizes that this is the way it is, and one takes seriously what you said, it almost draws me to the conclusion of the biological inevitability is one thing. It's just a given of life. If we live long enough, we will get sick. If we live long enough, we will lose our loved ones. That has nothing perhaps to do with what you're suggesting, namely an identity formation, a spiritual formation, a carving out of a way of knowing ourselves, which in fact is completely independent of the slings and arrows of biological inevitability. I think the problem that we have, both in the church and out of the church, is somehow, in a strange but perverse way, the two have become enmeshed. Mm -hmm. So that um, my identity becomes a part of the cultural norm, and therefore my, my aim in life is to, st to stave that off as long as possible. And the problem with that is, while that's understandable, the problem is, in some way, I don't get on with the business of nurturing and developing the identity. Now, I have to believe that 
when you said that your identity was given to you when you were baptized, I have to believe that while that's true, it became your task to nurture that identity as you grew intellectually and spiritually so that your identity may have been given to you and started and began with baptism, but you have not remained that little child. You have, you have seen it as your task to, to develop and work with and mold and shape that identity so that the baptized child becomes the mature, the mature man of faith. And that strikes me as a work and a task that one has to give himself to. Now, if I give myself to staving off the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and I don't really give myself to develop in this identity that you're talking about, it strikes me that one can reach a time in life when all the energy has been given over to the wrong thing, to staving off the disease and not dealing with the illness to, to reach the point where one says, notwithstanding my suffering, I know who I am, and who I am is not the arthritis. Who I am is not the arthritis. It's not my heart disease. My, who I am is also not my dementia, because it's not my mind. Who I am is a work of grace that's been given to me, which is independent of all the things that are happening to me. What do you think of that? There are a couple of responses I had, George, as you were going along, and, and that that critical issue of nurturing the the given identity. I I have to confess I have a dual identity. You know, the the other side is I have an identity not on the basis of my baptism, but on the basis of my birth. I am a human being and share that with all the rest of humanity. Um, and that too requires nurturing, doesn't it? it? It requires somebody caring for me when I needed it. It, it hopefully involves working alongside with other people as I matured. Um, maybe at times it involved caring for people simply because they were also human. Um, but I think that that is another identity that we have, that, that we all share, that we're all human beings. And biblically speaking, or theologically speaking, God created us all to be God's image in the world, which is a corporate identity that we, we all share. Um, but, but it also means that my nurturing involves all the rest of humanity. Within the church, as a baptized child of God, that nurturing is going to be what, what difference does this make in the way I live within this community as well, the church community, in addition to the world or global community? And, and that, that's an exciting uh, dualism. I mean, many dualisms are, are good and evil and light and dark and all this, but, but there's also this wondrous dual identity that I, as a baptized child of God and, and a member of the church universal, uh, I, I am also am completely aware that I'm a member of humanity and that, that makes me 
want to be a responsible citizen of the country and and participant in the world. Um, but but it, it, so that's, that's also part of it, because I don't have to feel exclusive then by being a baptized child of God in, in the church. I'm also a part of this bigger company. But, but what my point is, is, is that this nurturing, whether it be as a human being or a baptized Christian, is a community affair. I, I'm, I'm never just, it's not just me and God in the baptismal part, it's, it's I'm become a brother to millions of sisters and brothers who are also baptized. As, a, as born a human being, I'm a member of a family that at the present time is, what, seven to eight billion years uh, members uh, in this community of, of people. So my own identity is always a community issue. And I think if I were left to myself in my suffering, if I were all alone, solitude galore, or more yet loneliness, I would really get lost in that and perhaps forget who I am. But it is the company of other people that, that remind me of, of my identity that becomes so important. It, it gives me uh, a sense of meaning in in life and and that for me is truly a healing no matter what else is going on to know that I'm not alone that other people actually reinforce this identity by being with me when I'm down uh, by by saying things to me when uh, when I think I don't even need them but they they become part of this reservoir of mm. uh, of memories that help help me uh, fall back always on my basic identity. Um, so I need other people for this. And, uh, and I, I think that's the important part of the spirituality issue. The spirituality is not an isolation, but under God, a community, uh, both human and, and ecclesiastical, if you will. I, I don't know whether that's at all speaking to what your question was. No, I think it does. I'm struck by the fact that uh, no one goes through suffering alone and comes out doing very well. There is something about our suffering that, that when we are isolated and cut off from community, whatever that community is, there's, there's something about isolation and aloneness that makes suffering almost intolerable. And that whether it's a church community or a healthcare community, your family, your friends, or <clears throat> that no one, no one can walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone, or at least no one should. And that there's something empowering about that that makes perhaps the unbearable bearable because of that. But there's something about your explication of 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 an identity that transcends the degradation of the human mind and body that strikes me as of critical importance at certain times in life, particularly at the end of life. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that for most of our lives we don't have to fight that battle um, because we, you know, we have our careers, we have our family, we have whomever. Um, but when when you're a small child and you're alone, or when you're an old person and you're alone, 
you're left to you're left to your own demons. You're left to your own devices, and dark becomes very night dark. And the aloneness that I think we all dread um, comes upon us. Perhaps, perhaps our education and our success and our family and friends are all attempts to avoid the aloneness that comes when you stand in the dark all by yourself. And I hear you suggest that if one has an inner identity that's independent of the outer identity, I am an old man, I am a sick man, I am whatever, an identity which says, yes, but you are also a child of God, that that identity creates perhaps strength, a steadfastness, a comfort, and a consolation which no amount of medicine or nothing in this world can give because we don't have we don't have the capacity to do that. That must come from something within the person. Is is that right? Is that how you see it? I would say it's only within in me because God has put it there. It's not a within the person as though it's my own psychological makeup or my own sense of dignity. It's it's because God has defined me in the first place as a human being made in God's image. That's pretty significant. Male and female, all at the same time, God is maybe a member of the human community. And God has baptized me as a child in a family called the church. So I, I look at it at it all as a given rather than what I have. Other people were responsible for nurturing me in, in both uh, areas. So I couldn't have done that by myself. And therefore, when I need to be reminded of all that, I can't do it by myself either. I hope I won't die alone, because that's not the way we're made. Just to come back for, for a moment, if I may, um, you had talked about the, you don't have to go through this lifelong struggle of trying to succeed in the ways the world would delight. And I, I think I was nodding my uh, approval of that while you were talking because to me I don't have to struggle to become somebody. My goal in life is to become who I already am. And that would mean trying to answer my questions about illness with a healing response that says, I am who I am only by grace. And I will stay who I am because of grace. And that removes the struggle from me entirely. So I think whatever sufferings I have been through, will go through, uh, and you too, we're going to stay who we are. and. And living that out uh, is really, I think, what a faithful response to grace would be. I find that a completely different way of living one's life than the way we do by and large in, in our society. Uh, when, I hear, uh, when I hear you talk, I have the sense of uh, the wisdom and secret of letting go or the wisdom and secret of moving into a passive mode, letting go of the control of my life, wanting to change, wanting to recreate, 
wanting to um, go back. Letting that go and allowing this givenness that you're describing to move to the foreground uh, strikes me as the only way transformation can take place. Um, what I'm simply struck with is that if one doesn't have this grace available, if one, if one is stuck with having to try to be like one was, um, that's a dead-end road. It's a, it, it does not lead to peace, it does not lead to consolation or comfort. How does one who doesn't have that, how does one get that? Well, that's a good question. Um, a very difficult one, but I think it's the company we keep. I think if we spend our time, uh, not by ourselves, but in the midst of people who can make us laugh, make us feel that we matter, uh, we do matter. I, I was always struck by the fact that in, in Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, that because people, every time they would see this creature, would call him monster, he became a monster. That he, 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 his personality or his behavior was dependent on what people labeled him. Um, he wanted only to have a mate, and that's not what he was granted. And, uh, and so the whole tragedy of the Frankenstein story is really about his being alone, having no company. But I, I think if we put ourselves in, in, the, in the company of people who, who enliven us, who, uh, who let us laugh, who, who listen to our stories and who treat us as, in fact, as though we are persons, which we are, we have a better chance of, uh, of becoming part of the community. And then it's in that community, I think, that uh, we might be able to find some, some hope and some stability about identity as part of the group. Well, George, I think we have uh, many places to go in future conversations from there, but I, I do hope that our discussion today, which really was about biological markers, um, also led to our concern about the inner response to aging, and hopefully for some of, some people, uh, as hopefully for us too, that uh, our inner response might make the pain of aging bearable. <laughs>